0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE.
1: This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, and email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. Just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can also catch this episode on video on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so head on over there. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, John Hughes. The other John Hughes, of course.
0: Lindsay, we had so much to talk about that it spilled over. And I don't mind having a two-parter on this because I I think this episode's way overdue.
1: I mean, absolutely. Obviously, we had Daron Bowers on. We're going to welcome him back in a moment to talk about... 80s hip hop, rap in the 80s. And perhaps we were being a bit naive to think we could cram that all into one podcast. I mean, that's a pretty wide ranging topic when you think of all the directions that hip hop went in the 80s, all the different movements, all the different amazing artists and record labels. So we went into overdrive and overtime last time. So we're inviting Duran back. So once again, Encore presentation, our special guest today, Duran Bowers, who has worked (laughs) in A&R for several major record labels, most recently Rhino and is an expert in all things 80s hip-hop. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be back, you guys. How
1: are you doing? Great. Good. I'm excited to dig back into part two, so let's get started. We, we've talked about a lot of the artists like Run DMC, salt and pepa LL Cool J, who sort of really broke through and became really mainstream and as big as any rock star or pop star of the 80s, and then it just continued, and a lot of the... Although there were hard-hitting artists that really broke through, like NWA and Public Enemy, who I'd like to talk about in a minute, there were some that I think, for lack of a better term, like they broke through because they were kind of like cuddly or like non- non-threatening or like uh, the one that comes to mind, everybody loved The Fresh Prince, When Parents Just Don't Understand came out, which was pretty much about a suburban experience. I mean, it was about two things, shopping for clothes, for back-to-school clothes at the mall, with your clueless mom and stealing your parents' car, which happens to be a Porsche <laughs> and joyriding it around your neighborhood and then getting mildly in trouble for it. Like, you know, the, this was a very like kind of like, I mean, you know, they were jokey and they were cute and the video was very cute. And of course, Will Smith then known as the Fresh Prince was like incredibly charismatic. You can see him laying down the acting career in the video. So I think about him I think about Biz Markey and Just a Friend. I think about Tone Loke. I think about Young MC, who had, you know, uh, Bust a Move, but also like Principal's Office that was about, you know, like goofing off in school. Like it seemed like there was this era. Delicious Vinyl was a big part of it in the late 80s. I mean, it was very mainstream and it was very like, lighthearted. Safe. It was very safe. safe yeah. Very safe. Good songs. I mean, Bust a Move is a classic for me in particular. I love that song. I love the baseline in it, the Flea for the Red Hot Chili Peppers does. But like, can we talk a little bit? Oh, and then of course, MC Hammer. We haven't even, you know, like that was just, he had a cartoon, you know, Hammer Man, which I have on VHS. It's not very good. I don't recommend, but (laughs) uh, yeah, it's interesting artifact, but like things just got to this huge level of like very mainstream, but not particularly um, edgy well Hit
0: yeah part. it's when top 40 started embracing it a lot more but th- like you just mentioned the fat boys it, it it had been around since at least the mid 80s you had jam on it nucleus i mean that is probably one of the funniest funkiest greatest uh songs ever that yeah. everybody loved that song yeah. that didn't matter but it never crossed over and- because there was still resistance in top 40 it really took you know what how we feel about them, it really took the Beastie Boys to get that crossover happening to Top 40 uh, and run DMC with Walk This Way. So that I, I don't want to call it novelty rap, but really accessible, mainstream leaning songs, they were around before they actually entered the Top 40, I would think.
2: Yeah, I think with novelty rap and one that stuck up in my mind was Josie Loves PB 100 Dance. Remember that? <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, I think, the big, What was so cool about early novelty records like the Bad Boys, the Joseph Love, the movie the Boogie Boys, the Fly Girl, with records like that. Huh. What, what I love about all those groups and, and earlier was they were actually good rappers. They were skilled. Some of them had battles. They went through what you would call like the, how can I say it? The litmus test of becoming a rapper back then like you really had to rhyme you really had to been in some type of battle you you had to have some type of background to be considered a real rapper all those guys did and he is the break dancers and they all had this hip-hop culture thing down so all those guys were either affiliated or it came through the culture in a, in a good way when fresh prince when these guys were fresh prince world the reason why, to me, they they set the path for Delicious Vinyl was you had these two guys from Philly that they weren't that. They weren't the street rappers. They weren't the cultural rappers. They were two kids who could rhyme but they were playful. They didn't want to be that serious. They didn't take life that serious. So, yeah, I remember the Rock the House album that had Girls in the World, There's Nothing but Trouble, and it had the one record that sampled um, I Dream of G. They were... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were very playful. They were very cool. And I don't think it was the fact that they were trying to get to another audience. They just wanted to be different. And if you really think back, even if you go to rock music, pop music, funk, a lot the most successful artists in those genres just wanted to be different. They didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. So that's when that happened with DJ Jazzy Deaf and Fresh Prince. On that same album that had um, parents just understand they had brand new funk. And I bring that up. I defend Fresh Prince all the time with that song. Like, okay, yeah, but listen to Brandon Funk and tell me that he's not an MC, that he wasn't just doing his thing. Yeah, he was another one. They were managed by Rush Management. So Russell and Lee managed using Jazz and Jeff and Fresh Prince. What was their first tour? The Public Enemy tour. They were on the It Takes a Nation <laughs> tour. So, really? Yeah. Yes. They were on, if you look at, I want to say Ooh. the Brandon Funk video. In a tour bus, you'll see Def Jam artists on that tour bus. That was the tour they were on. Rush, even though wow. they had Def Jam, Rush management um had deals with Jive with Houdini and did that with Fresh Prince, Def Jam, and Profile with Run D- D- So sometimes they will all be on one bill together, going around the country on the bus. That was their first tour. So these guys could actually rap, but they were different, and they were always respected of being different. When Delicious Vinyl came. They brought the laid back and you definitely can feel that laid back West Coast, LA, Venice Beach, um, chilling on Crenshaw type of vibe. That's what Delicious Vinyl brought. which tone low, tone low, low key was, I think he was, uh, a house robber and, <laughs> and he was a low key, low key gangster. And when he did wild thing, which if I'm not mistaken, was written by young, young, DC. When he yeah. did that, it was just something being fun. He just wanted to do something different on a story, and not—he didn't want to be on the coattails of N.W.A. that was going at the time. Even though he could have very easily did that, done that. When Young MC had a shot, not out of his number one record, I mean my own record, it was the same thing. And not only was it safe for kids, my mom threw away my two life crew in N.W.A. tape. She, no, she didn't throw it away. She took it to work and she sold it. And
1: she hasn't taken back since then.
2: That's even. She didn't funny. want to be listening to that. At yeah.
1: you know, but, she might as well be enterprising about it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> man, she, she took oh, it away and sold it. She was like, yeah, I got lunch with those cassettes. I was bad. But she let me buy back After Dark. She let me buy soap I mean, by Yummy C. So it was acceptable for parents to buy. And of course, if it was acceptable for my parents to say yes, mainstream America ate that up. The first Grammy for rap came from DJ Jazzy Jeff's first parents, parents just don't understand. So that meant that the Grammy board, which were, which leans on an older rock pop demographic, love that record too, to the point where we can make a category out of it, and they beat Public Enemy, JJ Fad, salt and Pepper, and another artist that they won. So that right there kind of told, it, it told the story of where Rap
1: was going I was just gonna say I do remember that I believe it was nineteen ninety-five. There was one year where at the point the Grammys had uh embraced rap enough to have two categories best gr- best recording by a group, best solo, where women won it like Queen Latifa and Salt and Pepper won it in the same yeah, year. That, that so so yeah. awesome. yes.
2: So that was a good year. They won for none of your business and Queen Latifa won for, for you and I to So not only did they win. But they won for very positive female driven records. That's probably awesome. one of the best Grammy rap moments, to be honest with you, because not only did they give it to females where there wasn't a female rap category, they wanted again just for being who they were and standing yeah. head and shoulders with these guys. Yeah. So it, it it was a long path, but with the novelty rap, it, it was a thing of people being different to taking these safe guys, doing this, and then when they saw that young mc outsold every rapper at that point mc hammer came into the picture <laughs> and the thing that was so awesome about mc hammer that a lot of people don't know mc hammer is what we like to call a grown man he was a grown man he was not a kid like the rest of them. mc hammer was in his late 20s if i'm not mistaken when let's get It started came out and he brought the james brown michael jackson theme um to his videos and it all started with the videos he was dancing his butt off with background dancers that was from the streets of Oakland and these partying records with these samples. He did what everyone else was doing, but again, did it in the very West Coast California way and it went through. And then it was this monster of a record called Please Hammer Don't that just woke this and That was it. That was like the to this day. The only rap album to sell 10 million copies in
1: one year. Wow. Actually get it in
2: one year.
0: People like to forget that first record. the actual re-release of his first record uh, where, you know, turn this mother out. I mean well, that's he a had, great one. yeah, he had some credibility. He wasn't seen as a joke. He was seen as you know. This- I kind of
1: feel maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the reasons why he started to have less credibility was it was this era where people were not necessarily um like it was a murky legal area when it came to sampling. And because uh, You Can't Touch This was so heavily, heavily based on the Super Freak sample, it's a similar thing to um, Vanilla Ice and Queen, you know, mm-hmm. and Under Pressure where like, it was very built on a sample. And if I'm not mistaken, the samples, the Queen and Rick James were not given co-writing credit initially and, and or, or even just like given credit credit like that. I think that turned off, going back to what we're saying about Rock Purists in particular, to you know, sample Rick James or Queen, and not like, you know, make them a co-writer on the song. That's what I remember. I remember when people were turning on MC Hammer. They were like, "This is a ripoff of Super Freak. He basically is just rapping over Super Freak," and that turned a lot of people off. I could. That's how I remember it.
0: He was also an easy target. I mean, you had people like NWA, uh, Third Base, who saw themselves as more socially conscious, you know, and you had this guy doing party songs, and it's like, you know, that's whack, that's lame, why are you doing that? I I look back at Third Base, I'm embarrassed for Third Base. If they're not going to be embarrassed for themselves, I will be embarrassed for MC Search.
1: What are the, MC Search and Yo-Yo were the judges on a reality show on VH1 that I enjoyed very much called The White Rapper Show, and then they also were on. That. Um, and then Miss Rap Supreme, where they were looking for the next femc. I loved both those shows. But I remember, I remember. Am I wrong? I remember Third Base having some cred back in the day. Am I? Is this revisionist history in my mind?
0: Duran jump yes. in. But-
1: it yes. is okay. Third Base,
2: <laughs> third base was managed by management, and they were signed to Def Jam. That gave them automatic credit out the gate. And the Step Into the M was the first record i remember seeing a video for her in the record and it's like these bike boys can rap and they were different than bc boys bc boys was very punk party and they could rap with the Rick Rubin 808 third base took the death jam formula and rapped over it and it didn't seem it didn't seem contrived it didn't seem like they were trying to be something they weren't they were just really like that but then when they did the gas face was just NC Hammond tell you why that happened they kind of picked up the slack from run dmc mc hammer's first single that um popped off that i heard is called um turn it up that was the first video and in the video they were dancing and they dissed MC hammer i'm, I'm sorry they just run dmc in that video in that song in that video they dissed run dmc and that was a real big thing so instead of run dmc answering third base answer, And that's why they dissed um, MC Hammer. Third base was basically carrying Run DMC's beef. So then, when Hammer's second album came out and just shot through the stratosphere, and there's nothing you can do, and a side story, third base, they did a visit to LA, a promo visit. They did KDAY, and MC Hammer heard that they were up there. MC Hammer called up to the radio station and threatened third base and told them they wouldn't make it to their car <laughs> because they thought MC Hammer was this pop guy when, in actuality, MC Hammer's not a street guy. He's street-affiliated from Oakland. Oakland's not, Oakland's not the valley. So when they came at him, he had gangsters and, and friends and everybody waiting to take those guys out. There was a real-known street-industry-connected guy named Michael Concepcion that kind of... He, Russell and Lea had to make a call to save those guys, but they weren't going to make it to the airport. Hammer was going to school take them out. So then, when the next third base album came out, their target was Vanilla Ice, which was a much easier target at
0: that time. That was yeah. my <laughs> it, that was my <laughs> Third base is they really swung for the easy ones. It's like you yep. guys, you know, if Very you guys want to really do something, do something. But you know, the yeah. hammer is a target. Vanilla Ice is a target great.
1: Oh, John, we got back up for a second. You said you had a crazy story. I want to make sure you sell it.
0: Fly Girl by uh, the Boogie Boys, 1985. Junior year of high school for me. That was the song. And then not even a year later, Sly Fox Let's Go All The Way comes out, which completely rips the beat from a Fly Girl. They have the huge top ten hit, top five hit, whereas the Boogie Boys has another minor hit, kind of fades into the distance. And You know, there they are, one hit wonders, whatever you like. Flash forward, November 1988, John Hughes goes into Army basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And I'm there with the entire platoon of about 30 guys. You get to know each other. You're spending 24 7 together for eight weeks. And about the third week, I got to be known. Fairly of as as the music guy because I knew everything about music and so people are like what's this song well, I don't remember because you don't have music you don't have a Walkman with you you don't have anything it's basic training so you're kind of like singing and making things up as you go along and people are like oh I remember that song and about the third week there's a really cool guy there. Uh, uh that I knew and he kind of it gets me over to the side, you know, during uh some downtime. And he goes, I know you love music. and I gotta tell you something, but I need you to keep it a secret because I don't want anyone to find out. I'm like, uh oh no, where is this going? Uh and he says, uh I was in the boogie boys. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, like a fly girl boogie boys? And he goes, Yeah, you know, you know me as Strowman, but my name is William Strowman. And I'm like, oh, really? And he goes into his locker and he pulls out a boogie boys cassette. And it's the cassette and he unfolds it and he shows me. And it's him on the cover. It's friggin' William Stroke, who's in basic training with me right now at Fort Knox. Wow. And my and I'm like, he's not lying. I can tell you that a thousand percent.
1: That would be a really specific lie. You'd have to really go (laughs) out of your way to make that up. And
0: and why ask me to keep it a secret? Uh, And so he had gotten out or, you know, he had lost a lot of money uh, after the boogie boys. I can't honestly remember why or what happened, but he ended up having to join the air force. He was in the air force for a couple of years, got out of the air force uh, and decided, you know, I'm going to try the army now. So, he was like super nice and super intelligent and really gave me a lot of cautionary tales about the music industry before I was in it. And he was the greatest guy. And so I asked him, I had the opportunity. I said, what did you, did you guys get any money from Sly Fox? Cause you guys were on the same label capital. Did they work anything out with you? And I think they got a little money, like a one-time payout, but he was really bitter about what happened to him. And uh, years later, I'm out of the army. It's early late '90s. I thought, you know, I got it. Facebook Friendster comes around. I think it was Friendster, MySpace, whatever it was. The
1: I'm story gonna, gets even better that you, yeah. you yes. connected with him
0: on Friendster. I'm gonna find William Strowman because I remember him. He was a great guy. He died of cancer. Aww. I know. Aww. And I found out by trying to find him. Uh, uh, um, and Uh, I had a a blog called Lost in the 80s back then. I wrote this really nice uh, story about what I just told you guys, a tribute. And a couple of family members replied and said, "You know, hey, thanks for remembering him. He was a great guy. But what a random, bizarre story. Super Um, random. You know, I went to basic training. uh, I I
1: didn't even know you had this army pass. This is like a whole other (laughs) podcast. We got to do some other time because that's a story. But to get back... So we were talking a bit about novelty rap or rap that was like a little more uh, family friendly or less edgy, more PG rated. And it seems like, you know, we've talked about disco before, you and me, John, when we talked about like the when uh, 70 artists went new wave and, you know, disco had a short shelf life and then it kind of had a backlash when like there was Disco Duck by Rick Dees and like everybody was doing a disco record. And it seemed like rap was in danger in the later 80s to early 90s of going in that same direction. You know, every, there was rap in like diaper commercials and there was like rapping Rodney and rapping this and rapping that and like rapping on Sesame Street. And there was, you know, some, a lot of novelty records and you know, it could have gone that way but instead it went absolutely the other way. And as I mentioned before to this day is the most popular musical art form on the charts right now. So I'm curious to run, like what made it sort of come back from the brink of being, of sort of being that self-fulfilling prophecy of being just a fad, just a flash in the pan that a lot of the naysayers were already had said it was going to be? Was it the fact, I would argue it was the fact that artists like Public Enemy and NWA and you know these very uh, credible and very serious artists were coming up around the same time, but I'm curious for your take on it.
2: I think that 100%, that's why. I think hip hop always, samples. They were always rapping over samples, and like you said, Rock never gave that a real credit, because they looked at it as another disco, because sometimes disco was the exact same beat. You just put a little something more to it, and people, they would make 8-12 minute versions of just the same beat, and they took hip-hop as the same thing. But when around 87, 88, when Airbnb and Rakim, Public Enemy, even more serious, LL Cool J came, Came uh, and then when N.W.A. came, it became more social, and on a critical artistic level, the music got better. Um, when Public Enemy dropped "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back," that was the first time I even paid attention to a Rolling Stone magazine because they were going nuts over that, and I couldn't get it at the time, so I'm like, well, this is, this is Public Enemy, like they, they. The videos were also awesome. not in living baseheads. is one of my favorite videos of all time, and they were again speaking on what I was already going through in the inner city. That's what they were doing. But as I got older, I realized that okay, that's what I'm going through. There's a lot of people that's not, and they ended up being what Chuck D said. They ended up being the CNN of hip hop. And hip hop, ended up being the CNN of the streets. It became a reality rap thing. Everyone wants to say it was gangster rap. It's reality rap. They started saying things that people had no idea was going on. When Straight Outta Compton came out, and the first single, the very, very first single Outta Compton, but then when they got popular for F the police, that just shook everyone to its core because it was always a uniform thing of you respect the police, they um, help you across the street, they fight bad guys, they, they're the ones that law and order, you can call them, you can always rely on them. Here come these kids out of Compton saying that's the police and this is why. And mainstream America was like, "Oh my God, they're just so disrespectful." But people started echoing that and saying, "Yeah, this is actually what happens. This is yeah, this that's exactly what happened." You have people cheering and ready, and the record started selling even more and more. The more the government and the FBI warning came out, the more people wanted to buy it. And that's how mainstream kind of works. When um, D. Cider went and was fighting for that parental advisory sticker and all those things, their record sales <laughs> went up. So it was the same thing with NWA. They brought a social message to it. And then it also helped that the Bomb Squad and Dr. Dre were making some of the most innovative hip-hop music ever. With the Def Jam era, you had, again, Rick Rubin with Rock on Top of AOA. She had Mary Smith with the 808 and the different drums, and then the salt Peppy, when they did Shake Your Thing, they started putting go-go music into it. The Bomb Squad was taking the rock elements, making it a little bit more intense, and the way they sped up their drums was, it was just exciting. It was a very exciting type of music to the point that if they had put out an instrumental album, I think they probably would have sold no records. So rap became more of a powerful voice along with Fresh Prince, along with MC Hammer, along with salt and Pepper, and when you take a look back, hip-hop became a genre because it was a variety of things instead of just being this one
1: thing. I would actually argue, I would say that was around the time when, you know, hip-hop kind of became the music of rebellion and social change instead of rock. You know, when we think about the 60s or the 70s punk scene or whatever, we thought, you know, the voice of the youth, the voice of Uh, Youth rebellion of revolution was rock music, you know, especially in the 60s and definitely the punks in in the 70s. But sometime in the 80s, it changed where like rock star to seem kind of safe. If you look at what was on MTV around the same time, it was like poison and, uh, you know, stuff like that, which I like as well. But it was definitely not very socially forward or socially conscious it was more escapism and and um not very scary anymore you know you you joke about like parents not wanting certain records to be bought and your mom selling certain records but there were there were people that were scared of this music but in in my opinion in a good way like in a way that's a healthy way to be you know because music is for young people like you know parents aren't supposed to understand to quote the fresh prince so uh, yeah. would you agree with me on that that this it sort of became the culture driver, for in that way,
2: it, it did, and um, thank God hair metal came because <laughs> when hair metal came, and a lot of purists kind of abandoned rock and started listening to the older punk rock and things like that, hip hop <laughs> came and took that space, and it did. It, it, it started to take that space, but it was well rounded, where you had your Sex Pistols, you had the Clash, you had to a point you had Blondie and Talking Heads. We had public enemy NWA, wa Ice T. We had a variety too. What happened with us with hip hop becoming real was what you guys had in Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, where Guns N' Roses came and they did rock the right right way with a t-shirt and a shirt tied around and then Nirvana came and looked like they haven't bathed in like three weeks and the music kind of reflected and it was it it spoke to another um, area of youth and it rose. You had hip hop rising, Guns N' Roses bringing rock back and Nirvana bringing another world of it back. And I think things have not been the same since then. Everything changed after that.
1: I have never heard the theory that the rise of hip hop was directly uh, related to the rise of poison. But who, you know, I'm all for that theory. But to end things, since we're talking about sort of the transition to the 90s and the alternative rock explosion that happened then, concurrently with that, there was uh, an explosion or a growth of what uh, now we would call alternative hip-hop, but at the time might have been called backpack rap or rucksack Mm. rap if you were in the UK, which is, you know, like De La Soul, Side, Tribe Called Quest, Digital Underground, PM Dawn. I would even say put the second very phenomenal Beastie Boys record, Paul's Boutique, in that category of that movement. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about how, as rock in the late eighties to early nineties was transitioning to this like alternative college rock explosion, like hip hop had its similar uh, parallel movement.
2: That movement was driven by two things. I, I would say three. And it was going back to Run DMC and kept evolving how Run DMC was different than the Bambadas and the um, whole Sugar Hill movement and then and Rock, Hill and Big Daddy Kane was different than what Run DMC was doing. When De La Soul came out in 1989, that was different than what NWA and Public Enemy was doing because these were kids that, one, were kids. They were high school kids. They dressed different. They talked different. They almost purposely did it different so they wouldn't be typecast as what was really killing everything at that time um, in a good way the more reality and rap. They came in, they were playful, they had the Daisy Age, which they ended up hating the next album, but it was a mixture of the 60 Hippies kind of thing with the novelty rap, but they had actually rap skills like the Rakim and the Big Daddy Kings. It was a perfect combination. So that was 89 and um, it was the Native of tongue food. that was the name of it. It was, um, Jungle Brothers came out, Daylight was even bigger than them, tribe ended up being, being bigger than them. Queen Latifah was in that family too. Black Sheep was in that family. Um, mm. And they all came together and created this alternative to what was going on at the time. And, and a lot of times when it happens like that, it's just a bunch of kids that want to be different. It didn't take anything away from NWA and Ice Cube and Public Enemy, they coexisted. existed The other alternative was it was very Black Power-centric. So that's where the African medallions came from, the dreadlocks and the kind of um, African hobo dance and everything like that, it was an alternative to it. We were able to express ourselves more because of what NWA did. We had a bunch of kids who stayed in the suburbs. There was a lot of black kids in the suburbs and they were going to make their own music too. So that's what went into the nineties and drove that. But what a lot of older people now complain about rap music is it was more of a balance and that's true. And I think that's because of the gift and curse of Hip hop becoming a business when they started going from millions to billions, thanks to that ten million "Time On Her" novel, it turned into a real major business and started to drive the way everything goes. And that was the difference now than then. But then it was just everything was building and everything got fair airplay. The LSO got just as much airplay as Ice Cube did was a good thing
1: it was a golden age. It was a golden decade, and as we look back on that decade, you know, we can see so many artists today that all, you know, whether it's the the sensitive rap of "I Need Love" or the backpack rap or the reality rap or the party rap, it all goes back to this amazing time. And I've had an amazing time speaking with you, Daron. I mean, my God, I mean. We I think we covered so much. I'm really pr- there was so much to dig into and thanks to your expertise I think we really covered a great gamut of such a wide-ranging genre and such a wide-ranging decade So a special thanks to you. It was really wonderful speaking with you. Yay. We're applauding. Oh, thank you, you guys
2: Thank you guys for inviting me, man this, I love talking about where things come from because mm-hmm. kids today think that whatever they listen to that's where it started so it started with Drake and Drake was the first one to do sing-songy rap where, no, it actually started in 87, 88. So I love having conversations like this. Thank you so much. And anytime you want to talk, I'm here.
1: We'll definitely have you back because this has been a real treat. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm Lindsay Parker and I've been joined today by Deron Bowers and of course the other John Hughes. We want to thank you all for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally '80s the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s and please leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.